costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it cost God the life of his son. It is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. So writes Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the opening chapter of his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which in some ways is an extended meditation on the main themes of our gospel reading for today. Today's passage serves as a hinge between the two halves of Mark's gospel. In the first half, Jesus is going about teaching and healing, exercising his ministry, and establishing his authority as the Messiah. In the second half, he shifts gears and starts teaching and living the way of the cross. Our passage today comes right at that hinge moment and right on the heels of Peter's famous confession. You remember, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And they give them the whole list of potential, you know, candidates. And then he says, who do you say that I am? Peter comes up on behalf of the, the disciples and says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. Finally, they get it right. This is the moment Jesus has been waiting for. He's been watching them, watching the crowd say, who is this who can forgive sins? Who is this who even the wind and the waves obey? Finally, they see his identity. And now, Jesus has to tell them what kind of Messiah he is, or in other words, what he has come to do. At this point in the story, Luke says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He's up uh, at Caesarea Philippi in the north, the very northernmost point of Jesus' uh, area of ministry. And he has set his face south towards Jerusalem, and he's going all the way to Jerusalem. He's a man on a mission. Um, you can see this changes the way the disciples look at him. They're, they see that he is single-mindedly focused on his upcoming death, which he is just about to announce. And the whole time from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Jerusalem, he's teaching the disciples about his own death, about its significance, and also about the life of discipleship, what it means to follow a Messiah who has come to suffer and die. Up to this point in the story, Jesus has taught largely in parables. He's been inviting people to enter into the kingdom, telling stories, healing. But now it says that he began to teach quite openly. In other words, it's more of a direct teaching because it's a little bit more complicated in terms of the material he's trying to convey or easier to un misunderstand. Today's passage is the first of three passion predictions which serve as the basis of 
his teaching on the nature of his death and also the life of Christian discipleship. And from this passage, we learn three things. We learn that the Messiah must die. We learn that the Messiah's disciples must die. And we learn that the paradoxical path of laying down one's life for Jesus and for the gospel is, from a divine perspective, simple common sense. So first, the Messiah must die. Right after Peter's correct answer, you are the Messiah, Jesus turns a sharp corner by telling his disciples several truly shocking things which catch them completely off guard. The first thing he says is that the Messiah must suffer. This whole conversation, you have to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew before Jesus' death and resurrection. We, of course, know where Jesus is going in Jerusalem. We know his ultimate fate, his ultimate destiny. But his disciples at this point do not. So when he says the Messiah must suffer, it sends them through a loop. The Messiah was not supposed to suffer. He was not supposed to die. He was supposed to be a victorious figure, a figure who would come to his people and God would establish his reign, his righteous and just rule over the people of Israel, getting rid of foreign oppressors. So the idea that the Messiah would fulfill his calling by suffering was out of the question, was unthinkable. Even more shocking, however, was the title that Jesus used to describe the Messiah or to describe himself, Son of Man, a title that's drawn from probably the most exalted picture of the Messiah in the Old Testament from Daniel 7. This picture is one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, seated on his throne. And God bestows on this figure dominion and power and authority and everlasting kingdom. It's the exact, it looks, seems like the exact opposite of a figure of suffering and death. Not only that, it's not just that the Messiah is, will suffer, must suffer, but that he'll be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Now, those three categories make up the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious authorities of the people of God. And the idea that the, the, the elite of Judaism would reject Israel's Messiah is just mind-boggling. Uh, in other words, it's not humanity at its worst that rejects Jesus, but humanity at its best that rejects Jesus. If that weren't shocking enough, he goes on to say that the Messiah must die, and not just die, but must suffer a violent death. He must be killed. He does go on to say that after three days he'll rise again, but I suspect the disciples were so astounded to hear that the Messiah must suffer and be rejected by his people and be killed that they just couldn't take anymore, they couldn't process anymore, and stopped listening. After all, his teaching here seems to contradict Peter's confession a moment earlier. As one scholar said, for Peter, that the Son of Man would die is unthinkable. For Jesus, it is inevitable. 
So Peter, who was just praised a moment ago for supernatural knowledge, is now rebuked for demonic ways of thinking. And in fact, Peter is echoing one of the devil's temptations where he offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bypass the cross and worship him. Though it was hard uh, to see at the time, in God's plan, the death of the Messiah was not an unfortunate accident, not a promising life cut short, but the fulfillment of his life and mission. Welcome to Lent. The Messiah must die. But not only the Messiah, Jesus goes on to say that his disciples must die as well. Now, this is where people start to get very uncomfortable. It's where where we start to say things like, well, surely he was talking just to those 12, right? Or just to the elite group of super apostles, the, the Marines of the Christian life. But he makes it abundantly clear in this passage that he's talking about everyone that follows him. It says rather abruptly that he called, that using that language of calling, he called all the crowds to him. And he said, not just to the disciples, but to everyone who was there, if any want to be my followers, my disciples, not just super disciples, but all, you must do these two things deny yourselves, and take up your cross. That's how you follow him. These two things, in turn, are often misunderstood. And I think they're misunderstood because we want to make them respectable. We want to make them something that's reasonable and understandable for a respectable person to do. But Jesus is not being respectable. He's being radical. First of all, he says, we must deny ourselves. This is not a call for moderation or restraint. It means to sever a relationship. This is used again when Peter denies Jesus. It's a a break (laughs) in a relationship. And in our own lives, it means the same sort of severing of a relationship with our old selves. This kind of self-denial is on a different level entirely than giving up chocolate for Lent, as nice as that might be. It's not the denial of something to the self, not denying chocolate to the self, but the denial of the self itself. It's a way of saying no to that part of ourselves which hinders us from the love of God, which keeps us from accepting the love of God in our lives. And this is because the old self with its sinful desires and disordered loves is beyond reform. The only remedy is to die to that way of living and begin a radically new life. As Paul would later say, sort of reflecting on this passage, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He goes on to say that to follow him, we must take up our cross. In other words, we must endure suffering and rejection because of our allegiance to Jesus, even to the point of death. 
Now, Mark's readers, like us, know how Jesus died. So the mention of the cross doesn't surprise us. But to the disciples, this would have had huge shock value. This is the image that Jesus chooses to use for the Christian life. It's not a pretty religious symbol that we put on our necklaces, a beautiful silver cross in our church. This is an instrument of torture and shame, of execution. Not a nice religious symbol, it is an instrument of painful death. Paul will also later go on to say that this is precisely, paradoxically, his only boast. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or in other words, the world has died to me and I to the world. The new self rises only after the old self dies. This is tough stuff. The Messiah that they hoped would save them is on a mission to die. And he says that those who want to follow him, those who want to participate in his kingdom, must also die. As long as we try to fit God's purposes into our cramped way of thinking, they will not make sense. But God's way of thinking turns the values of the world upside down. That's why Jesus' words sound paradoxical at first. Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. The only reason that makes sense is because God is turning our upside-down world right side up again. He's trying to get us to take a longer view on life, a much longer view, and to contrast our present natural life with true life, that eternal life which is God's gift, his costly grace. Compared to that true and eternal life, even the greatest of institutions are just a momentary blip. C.S. Lewis once said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Every human life is so sacred, so valuable, that its ultimate welfare should be far and away our greatest concern in life. From this perspective, Jesus is being eminently practical. He's telling us how to enter into that true life, which is eternal. What good would it be, after all, to gain the whole world but lose true life? And the message of the gospel is that we must die to the world in order to live to God, that the way of the cross is actually the way of life and peace. For Jesus did not just teach the way of the cross, he lived it. Peter, far from denying himself, ended up denying Jesus three times. 
and the Romans had to get a bystander to carry the cross because none of Jesus' disciples were willing to take it up. But although his disciples were unwilling to lose their lives for his sake, he voluntarily gave his life for ours. Such grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. In this season of Lent, as we join Jesus on the road to Jerusalem and fix our attention on the cross, may God give us the grace to see our lives with the eyes of faith from his perspective, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him in the way that leads to true life.